Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. As X of Swords draws nearer, nope, that's not what it's called. As Ten of Swords draws nearer, I'm going to need to get used to calling it Ten of Swords and not X of Swords every time I think of it in my head. I guess that makes this This Is X. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Maddie. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive this experience. Hopefully like Shogo, because why would you kill a kid? That's just rude. Yeah, it's just not cool. You know, I've put up with the Sammy the Fishboy death for 20 years now, and I'm still saucy about it. But speaking of things that are saucy and sassy and all the right ways, we have with us another one of our amazing summertime guests. We have, returning from last episode, Josh. Hey, buddy. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, I love having you, and you come with a wealth of X knowledge in the first place. On our last episode, you were talking about your issue galleries and your summaries and your reviews, and it's that sort of deep well that I love poking into. And in the course of X-Men Empire and, you know, all of Hoxpox Doxos, we've been given an opportunity to see so many random fucking mutants that no one would ever think of seeing again. And I'm just wondering, who's your deepest wish random mutant you just wish would show up that hasn't yet? I see these all the time, and and then I forget about them like two days later. But when I was doing my X Factor gallery and doing that full reread of X Factor Volume One lately, Rhapsody from the beginning of Peter David's first run on it, the blue-skinned uh, music teacher, hypnotizing, killing assholes, woman that Madrix fell in love with for a little bit, and then she disappeared, and she was supposed to come back, and then Peter David rage quit, and then now it's thirty years later, and she never came back. I want more Rhapsody. Oh, that's a great choice. As soon as you said it, the visage came into my head. Maddie, if you take a look at it, Rhapsody is kind of like what would happen if Kimbra was a 1980s eyeglasses advertisement. Oh my God. She's amazing. Oh, yes. Now, I know I'm kind of a broken record. And it sounds kind of stupid that I'm always bringing up X-Force Ecstatics. And I know it's a lot. But I do think that one of the things about a book like X-Force Ecstatics that has quite literally an exhaustive and intentionally large group cast meant for that sort of touch toning back onto. If I could have any obscure member, I would probably like the Gin Genie. And here's why. Her powers were that, depending on what she drank, she could like breathe fire, but it had to be alcohol. So she was kind of always, yeah. So she's always drunk. She dies in one issue and I love her. And here's why I kind of do like it. In an age of Krakoan magic, right? They can do gene sequencing to make it that maybe she doesn't get drunk or maybe she doesn't need to drink just alcohol. And the value of that sort of reinterpretation of her character. We don't need to know what she was like before to see somebody put their life together and pick themselves back up and be moved by it. And that would be an opportunity to view Krakoan medicine as a gift or boon to the mutants who aren't affected by it in sort of that way. And I personally think she was a cool design. She was a cool name. One of her other potential names was the Alcoholist, 
which is the greatest fucking name. I've, I would also like the Dipsomaniac personally, but I want to know, guys, who do you guys want to see? So I have two answers. My first answer is my joke answer. It's that mutant we saw in that one classic X-Men who was kind of like an incel and was mad at Storm for not being impressed with his super explodey powers that he used to like abuse people. And then Storm was like, "Uh uh-uh, this ain't it, Chief. And yeah, that guy. (laughs) He doesn't have a name. I don't think he's been seen ever since, but it's a very deep cut. My second one is I think should be resurrected because how he died is unfortunate, is Dummy. Now, if you don't know who Dummy is, Dummy was a mutant introduced in New X-Men, who is part of the special class with Zorn. And his mutant power is, he's made out of gas. His And he's in this containment suit. His suit got shot, and then he just slowly evaporated, and nobody did anything. One of the more heartbreaking moments of New X-Men, for sure. And, you know, Maddie. New X-Men, that totally makes me remember. Your first major experience with reading the comics was Academy X by Weir and DeFilippis. And that was a veritable cornucopia of disposable characters. Oh there my was that God. yearbook special that had like everybody laid out and how many of them became famous. That's where Pixie came from. That's actually a really good point. I never even, I never considered that. So in that way, I feel like your earliest X fandom is so intrinsically linked to this idea of obscure character. Oh, beyond. I mean, personally, I would I would love to see what Mercury's been up to because I never realized I was into metallic women until I was like 13 reading uh, New X-Men Academy X. Uh, but you aside know, from that... Gaze had Terminator, so that was... That's that's your Terminator, I guess. This is my this is my Terminator. Uh, Cecily Kincaid can, uh, can get it respectfully and and with her consent uh, but you know i'm gonna keep it hellions i'm gonna say i would love 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 to know what dust has been up to i wouldn't call oh, her an never obscure mutant by any means i wouldn't i wouldn't consider this an obscure choice but i just genuinely would love to see i think there's a lot of room for muslim representation in comics and i'd love to see another strong female character take a center stage uh role here in anything <laughs> more suraya more suraya forever and I actually, there's this gorgeous picture of Josh in a sandstorm. And I actually thought for a moment it was a dust cosplay when he first showed me the photo, but it's uh. a real good picture. Hmm. So for me, I kind of think I don't remember her name, but I want to see the Genosian mutate that took quite a spotlight pre-mutant liberation on the island. Jenny Ransom back in Extinction Agenda. Yeah. Oh, those were a lot of really great characters that I feel like, you know, that kind of rusty and skids, that whole generation of characters from Uncanny and New Mutants, they really haven't been shown enough. You describing Gin Genie sounded so good and it made me want like a Kelly Sue DeConnick Gin Genie series where she's in AA, but anytime like she needs to save someone, she has to force herself to relapse and use her powers. And I want that written by Kelly Sue DeConnick so bad. Oh my god, and I'm seeing, like, really gut-wrenching art by, like, Trad Moore. Sort of like a macabre take on the mundanity of her painful existence. And then an over-the-top explosive fire of her passion as Gin Genie. Yes. 
Up first today in a jam-packed episode of This Is Axe on Axe for Podcast, we're covering Excalibur number 11 with writer Teeny Howard, artist Marcus Two, color artist Eric Arseniega, letterer VC's Ariana Mayer with design by Tom Muller, and cover artist by my personal favorite, Mahmoud Asrar, with Matthew Wilson. We jump back into the main timeline here from a few issues ago and catch up with the band Excalibur, rehabilitating Shogo under the care of the green high priestesses of Opaluna Saturnine before the group make their way to stand toe-to-toe against Opaluna Saturnine. But the B-plot is probably what's most interesting for me here. We see Richter having a teleconference, a psychic communication with Apocalypse, in which it is revealed that he is an external and... We see the extraction of Kendra's essence into a totem. This is clearly the road leading up to Ten of Swords, and yet this is the last issue of Excalibur for a while to not be directly canon for Ten of Swords. How do we all feel about this? Okay, so this issue was like, um, I've liked Excalibur a lot, but this issue maybe gave me something, something I've been missing from Excalibur. And I'm going to be a little weird for a second. And I need to talk about the format of this book as it, to me, indicates some of the impact of the story. So while so much of the production and the design is done by Tom Muller, I note that the production on this one is done by a guy named Nick Russell. And this was also the first time, I think, in a while that the demarcation page that's usually used at the end to signal the end of the issue was used to cut off a section of the book and it made the rogue gambit stuff at the end feel like an epilogue and that sort of restructuring of my understanding of this as chapters of a bigger book kind of primed my brain for the way I want to approach Ten of Swords so I thought even functionally the book sought to create a transition and beyond that this was by far the best the art has looked in this book Yet. I don't know if this timed out that it allowed for Marcus to to spend more time on each page, but all of the sequences here are clear and clean. And while a lot of books are using negative and white space to create the dramatic illusion of intensity and severity on the page, it would seem Excalibur is going a much more old school route and in many ways is kind of doing away with the need for page bleed and is expanding to the edges of the page. And that's a little bit more like a sword and sorcery magazine. And that's what I thought I was reading. I felt like I was reading an X-Men Sword and Sorcery magazine a la Savage Sword of Conan, Marvel Print 1984. And that was a unique experience for me. I agree. I definitely, and maybe I'm a little late on this because I don't actually play D&D, but this is the one that definitely made me fully realize that we are reading Teeny's D&D book and this is just the DM like writing this quest because it's kind of like your some of your mythical tropes of like the rogue but um bum the rogue and the druid and the avatars and the earth power it was gorgeous i liked it once i got in i was so 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 confused at the start i had to go back and pull out the back issues and then look up like why i was confused and realized that issue nine came out on march 18th and that five months is just too long for my frenetic brain to remember exactly where jubilee and shogo were supposed to be absolutely agreed I love the Apocalypse backstory, tying it in and weaving it in a way so that way Apocalypse's mission has not changed, that this is the same Apocalypse of 10,000 years, this is the same Apocalypse that has 
been doing everything we've seen him do since his first appearance in X Factor, wanting all the same things, but now it just aligns with the X-Men and it aligns with varying mutants and their, you know, missions. That's my favorite part of this book. The fact that Richter plays an important part and it's a new role for him that feels natural for his character and is of his character solely, not like his character in relation to Shatterstar, which we don't get enough of. I really like, like, those are the parts that, that we got some good content of that in here made me very happy. So for me, I absolutely loved this issue like nico and josh said it's it's just absolutely fantastic i love the way that the action bleeds through panels and i love the use of how warm how vibrant the colors are in this for me it makes it makes this team feel more alive than some of the other books we've been reading but i get what you're saying i even thought the saturation on the sepia filter on the flashback pages was particularly warm and vivid there's something about the way color and line especially the way that the color and the inking are playing off of each other that's giving this um, a video game emotiony feel at the same time. The, yeah, the colors are definitely used. Like, because I'm just flipping through the pages right now, and you know, Jubilee and her tree is tinted so heavily purple, and Apocalypse and flashbacks with the sepia are tinted so red, and Richter in the woods with the druids are tinted, you know, with this light blue green, and you know, it's as you just flip through the pages, you're going back and forth between very strong vibes. The opal Saturnine ones have so much white all around her and in them. Like color and emotion is a huge part of the storytelling in this book. You know, even in the mountain range, you see the red off of Betsy's cape, and you see the green off of Richter's cape against the super lightly saturated blues and whites, and it, it just pops. But even even her psionic shield, Betsy's psionic shield, it's it's all and the glow on the arrows from high priestesses, it's all just so like Nico said, it's it's motion. I also wanted to point out that this issue was really the first time that I felt like Jubilee was acting the way she should towards Shogo. And seeing her emotion actually brought tears to my eyes. I just was moved by how upset she was that he had been injured. It, not to put a spotlight on him, but Josh, as you're a dad, would you want to respond to that? I loved how that was done in here depending on who's writing books like you can usually tell who's a parent and who isn't because of the way they have characters kind of refer to kids like people who have children think of kids and you know a character's kids very differently than people who don't even though i know like teeny doesn't have her own like the the way she's handled Jubilee and Shogo, like, has been very real. Like, I, I tend to think of Shogo as a dragon more like my little guy. Whereas, like, if he turned into a dragon, I'd be a little worried. But I'd also just kind of be like, look, like, he's a good dragon. Like, let him just fly around and burn some shit for a few minutes. Like, you know, we'll, we'll turn him back later. But as soon as he gets hurt, just, you know, wanting to curse and blow everyone up and absolutely, like... I'm looking back at the page where she's crying and blowing stuff up in the tree and Betsy's there kneeling down next to it, trying to calm her down. And there's just so much real emotion 
drawn into this that that yeah like that is that is a parent scared for their like without any words on this page i would know that's a parent scared for their child and i think that's kind of like a hallmark of effective writing if somebody both within the experience josh as a father and somebody outside of the experience kyle as a non-parent i think there's something to be said for the power of emotional effective writing especially through a visual and written medium that it's able to convey that and like that that kind of goes to the creative team and saying hey you guys are making a really strong product that where the art expresses what it's supposed to so you know this whole candra business now okay i don't love the externals for those of you who aren't aware, the externals are a kind of remnant element of X-Force from the 90s, the original run, where basically, and I'm not making this up, they're just mutant Highlanders. That's really the origin, down to you have to cut their fucking heads off. They were mutant Highlanders, and Marvel got sued as fuck and was told you cannot do that anymore. And they kind of tried to change it here and there, and it was seldom used, and Selene was an external, and then Apocalypse was an external, and then maybe nobody was an external, and then maybe the externals was just a secret club they made up to manipulate powerful mutants, and all of this stuff back and forth. One of the things I'm going to give it up to is Hickman really is trying to create a readable X-Men, and I'm not a big fan of retcons, I don't need you to go back and change something. He's not changing anything. He's explaining how everything can exist together. And by giving huge elements of that to other people, in this case, the externals magic to Teeny Howard to put her spin on it. I have to imagine for those of you who even like Gambit, you're like, who the fuck is Condra? What? Why? Yeah, I, I like it. Like, I respect it intellectually. Like, I'm like, ooh, that's a great deep pull from Teeny to find a character that ties Apocalypse and Rogue and Gambit in a way that, you know, we can now bring back and, you know, have kind of conflicting feelings or past affecting the future. Like, that's a good pull. Do I care about Condra? No. (laughs) So it doesn't do much for me in the story, but I'm like, oh, that's well done. I guess that's probably how a bunch of people felt about Mikhail last week. Sure was for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kyle, this is just back-to-back you-don't-give-a-shits. Yeah, I have no idea. I, I, I have absolutely no connection. I, I'd like to see where the story goes. It may be if it turns out interesting, it'll make me want to go back and read more about this character. But as of right now, I really don't have any opinion about them. Jonah and Maddie, like, you guys are two people who I think we can agree you both like Gambit and, or at least, you know, the cultural interpretation of him. Maddie, I know you're like a big Gambit guy. So how do you guys feel about knowing Gambit is magic? Would we say that Gambit is magic? Gambit has always been magic. Do you not remember when he was offering free chakra massages at Burning Man? I don't remember that. (laughs) Gambit also has a mystical charm. Which is, as long as you don't know that Gambit is, as long as you don't know that Gambit has a magical influence that makes you want to do what he wants, it works. If you're aware of it, it doesn't work. Like in Mystery Men, where I'm only invisible if you don't look at me. Yes, you're only charming if you don't know he's not charming. Yeah, it's that. Huh. Oh, we love, we love paradoxes like that. 
And, you know, beyond that, I more meant, like, Gambit is tied to this ancient magical thing. You know, Kandra, they even say, oh, that's that guy that was bothering Rogan Gambit back then. And I'm like, oh, we would have done away with, like, in the 90s, that would have just been an editorial box. See X-Men 17. I miss editorial boxes so much. You know, and especially in the digital age, it wouldn't be that hard to have it be where you can click on a character citation since the apps already have find more of this character sort by character even if you don't do it for the live stuff for comiXology that's something you could easily put in to a marvel unlimited style app especially because it would just be creating a link between a page and a location it's again it's a character i still haven't met him in his original appearance i know a little bit about him from watching the x-men cartoon i know some about what happens here or there, especially with him and Belladonna and the Thieves Guild. And that being said, I don't know if I really care about Gambit being part magic or having magical ties. I don't really think it matters to him. I think he's already kind of meant to be the cool guy. And that's just kind of adding more. Like, you don't look at the Fonz and you add something cool to him. He's already cool. You don't need you don't need to add more to that. So I feel like it's just kind of extra, it's just fluff. I'm I'm surprised nobody else wanted to talk about more of this very um like sexually tense relationship between Apocalypse and Richter. Like it's it first started with that one cover where Apocalypse was like holding him tenderly, and now it's it's they're having this weird bond. And I'm personally not a monster fucker, but I can see it for some people if they wanted to get with A. So, like, I am about it. I, I really am about Richter becoming a druid, kind of, and then basically having this, you know, psionic connection with Apocalypse. Now, he's lost in the void, and Apocalypse has to save him. Reach out. Tell me where you are. I'll find you. Like, did nobody else think this was really sexual? No, it was overtly <laughs> sexual. And it's really interesting to see somebody have a sexual relationship with Apocalypse in that regard, because most of the relationships you associate with Apocalypse are adversarial. And not just adversarial. Apocalypse doesn't just have guys he doesn't get along with at the bar. Apocalypse has guys he wants to see exterminated from time. And it's sort of in that regard that it's fascinating how hard they're working to keep the interplay between Cable and Apocalypse at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've wondered that a lot. Like, as a fan of the uh, Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix and Ascani Sun minis, the fact that this kid Cable is supposed to have grown up, like, near the end and have been there for, like, the defeat of Apocalypse and in the Apocalypse-ruined world a thousand years from now, like, how is he cool just, like, running around banging cuckoos while Apocalypse is on the island with him. Well, you know, I wonder if it's an understanding that that is no longer the timeline, that mutants have this blind faith in Charles and a precognizant understanding of this mutant legacy that is here in the now for a while. So I wonder if it's, and it, and it could be in that way partially suspension of disbelief. We are to know that Cable is a younger version of himself, and despite having grown up there, you know, he's currently living on an island tropical paradise where sure apocalypse is his neighbor but he has five smoking hot girlfriends who all share one hive <laughs> mind and he has no responsibility to anyone but himself you know i would be able to suspend my disbelief and with that i guess we're talking about cable number three so let's do it right writer jerry dugan gary dugan jerry dugan 
Artist Phil Noto with letter VCs Josephino, designed by Tom Muller and cover artist Phil Noto. So we open up on young Cable reliving the murder of his older self before snapping back to present with he and Esme of the Cuckoos have been abducted from Philadelphia by the Space Knights of Galador. Cable strikes a bargain to restore the Space Knights' destroyed homeworld through time travel with a casual grave robbing trip to Old Man Cable's grave, but an old friend's beaten them to the punch. The King of Staten Island, Deadpool. <laughs> There was a lot going on in this issue, and I, I'm I'm curious to know, as somebody who did not read Extermination, I, I only have read Extermination number one now for the reveal, um, after reading Cable number three, to see the initial murder, the, the hooded man revealed to be young Cable. But I, I don't quite know what the fallout from that's going to be. I'm happy to see it referenced, though, because that's been my question for three issues now. I think one of the things that, and I brought it up too many times and I can't stop, but Cable was the old man, and now we sit in an old manified Marvel universe. So I don't know that I'm rushing to see the old man Cable come back anytime soon, and I'm excited to see the potentiality of familial dynamic cable i think bringing up the adventures of cyclops and phoenix as well as ascani son those were really beloved stories and a chance to see those play out in the modern age with scott and gene finally together makes a lot of sense and i'm i guess cautious for lack of a better term i'm hesitant about rushing headfirst into this new idea of young cable with an expiration date on it i don't want to get attached to young cable if he's gonna go away i want to get attached to young cable to be attached to young cable and there's been so much turnover you know the fact that Laura isn't Wolverine in the most direct way right now is like a knife to my gut and I want to know do you guys want to see young Cable stick around or not yeah there, there definitely is a kid Loki feel to this I like this I know a lot of people are anti-Babel I've only liked Cable historically as a father or a son I, I didn't really care for him even in the OG X-Force books I didn't care for Cable and Deadpool I like him when he's linked with Cyclops and Gene, and you always got that weird, like, you know, old man saying thanks, dad, to the younger son, or when they brought Hope around and we got to see him as a dad. So the fact that young Cable gives us the opportunity to really dive into Scott as a dad, he's got his son, he's got his daughter, there's all these family dynamics, like... Yeah, like that is part of Mutant Paradise for Scott Summers, 100%. And I like this cable there. I don't want to think that there's like a guillotine hanging and eventually we get old cable back. I'm definitely enjoying Kid Cable. It's a refreshing take on the character. I feel like it, it's given him a lot of room to grow. A big part of my concern with all the flashbacks to Old Man Cable was that he would be coming back. So I'm I'm not sure what the plan is for this book just yet, but I'm hopeful that we're not going to see both in the current timeline. So I have to wonder, would they allow two Cables to exist at the same time? Kind of historically, they have. X-Man and Cable, Strife and Cable. There's some precedent that there's room for at least two Nate Summers. Gray, Dayspring, Ascani, Christopher. So I'd be fascinated to see if that's where this goes. I'm particularly fascinated about how Space Knights are going to play into this. Like, I don't even know what else to say. Space Knights. Guys, it's fucking Space Knights. Like, we're talking about how the X-Men have gotten so magical in the last couple of months. I almost forget that the X-Men started Docs super space-based. Like, Hoxpox was very terrestrial, and then Docs started out very 
space with new mutants out in space and all of the Shi'ar stuff happening over in the pages of X-Men. And now we find ourselves in this very magic place going into Zoss. And I'm like, Hoxbox Doc Zox is taking us on such a transformative experience through the X-Men that it's kind of easy to forget that we were in space pretty recently. Is anybody currently reading any of the Deadpool? I am. I recently read the issues of Deadpool where the X-Men made some appearances at the recommendation of Chongo, one of our guests from a few weeks ago. It was really interesting because I don't love Deadpool. I have a weird amount of Deadpool stuff. I have a weird amount of Deadpool clothing. I identify with Deadpool. My husband is the cable to my Deadpool. So I guess in a lot of ways, I don't like Deadpool because we're both the loudest guy at the very fancy restaurant. So it's hard for me. But what I got from this issue was real emotion from a character who doesn't experience a whole lot of real emotion. It's that intensity when the wall breaks. And there's two different ways to do the intensity when the wall breaks, right? You can either do it Rick Remender, where it's this hyper-dramatic, it's this kid, and it's apocalypse, and I won't let you kill it, or maybe I will, uh, kind of histrionics, you know what I mean? Where basically it's Michael Scott with swords. Or you can do it this way, where it's a powerful and compelling look at the complexities of a dual personality, and not a dual not like he's not saying he has split personality, a dual personality where the things that make Deadpool are the humorous insanity, the what I'll call commercial tagline fodder mixed with the explosions, the action sequence fodder. And this managed to carry all of that in a beautiful, succinct way. Uh-oh, seems like Klanakaba interfered and messed up that body slide. While we get Blacksmith working on it, here's everybody's thoughts on Wolverine number four. And if you're a Cable fan or you just like free stuff, don't forget to check out any of the Twitters that are mentioned as well as the official Twitter at Exes for Podcast, where you can retweet these episodes to get your hands on a Cable Deadpool Pop Funko. All summer long, we've been running giveaways, having given away a Dazzler action figure, Worlds Apart trade, as well as two of Chongo's original design t-shirts. Now, we're looking to give away the Ascani son himself, so don't forget to check out Twitter where you can get a look at the figure before you go ahead and try and... Oh, I guess Deadpool's on it, too. Anyway, I've been Nico Action, and you guys can check me out at N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, Nico Action, on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you've heard for the show, don't forget to leave a review. Check us out on com, and we look forward to hearing from you guys soon. See ya! Today we're going to be covering Wolverine number 4, written by Benjamin Percy, with artist Victor Bogdanovic, color artist Matthew Wilson, letterer VCs Corey Pettit, designed by Tom Muller, and cover artists Adam Kubert and Frank Martin. Seeking an escape from paradise, Wolverine portals himself to the frozen north to drink himself into a flurry. The storm is approaching, and all is done as it seems at this greasy spoon. An intervention from a mutant trauma support group threatens to do Logan in, if not for a visit from Omega Red and a legion of vampires, which can only mean things are about to get worse. I have long been a Wolverine fan. I have long since said that you put Wolverine in any story, in any role as an Avenger, as an X-Man, as a weapon, as a teacher, as a guide. You know, I I can get behind Wolverine in any capacity. But that said, this issue felt a little bit thin to me. I, I do credit Victor Bogdanovic tremendously uh, for his work. And of course, the, the Hidden Gate page was a nice little preamble, didn't waste much time, the nice little Tom Muller design page. But otherwise, I thought it was a little bit of a 
the slow burn. The mystery felt a little bit familiar. It wasn't until the art started to bleed a little bit and war with Wolverine's shifting of consciousness that I really became enthralled in the stakes of what was happening. I thought the mutant trauma support group is something that we're starting to see a lot more, especially the first place that I noticed. Anything like this is the pages of New Mutants number four, I believe, the discussion of Doc's mutants. I think we're going to only see more of this as we move forward. You know, I also found it very convenient that the one bartender at this rest stop joint seemed to be the only person who knew who Wolverine was vis-a-vis bartending in Madripoor sometime earlier. I feel like there must be a long list of collateral damage that Wolverine has laid in his past, and you would only think that that would be a well to mine for an actual named character who was wronged by Wolverine, although I suppose he doesn't really waste much time with people who aren't mutants. I think the discussion that we could have here is the same discussion that we've been having with Benjamin Percy's X-Force, which is that they seem to be a little bit outside of the main narrative, which is perfectly fine, but given that that's the case, I was thankful to see Omega Red join the frame again here, if only for a few pages and to tease whatever will happen in hopefully Wolverine number five. I am happy to see that we're getting back on track as established in Wolverine number one. I am very curious about the Legion of Vampires and Dracula. I'm very curious to see Dracula under Omega Red's control. And to echo something that we had discussed earlier, there doesn't seem to be much mutant on mutant conflict. It seems like all mutants have been given a clean slate. And so that said, even though it's a little bit skewed that he's under the control of Dracula, it will still be nice to see a mutant take an adversarial role. Of course, I did get a good laugh out of Wolverine using Magneto's helmet as a quote-unquote piss bucket, and I think it was a really great exchange to see Magneto go to put Wolverine in his place, and to be reminded, you know, I stole your helmet, you ripped the adamantium out of my skeleton. I think we can call this one even. I thought that that was a really honest and, and well-characterized exchange between Magneto and Wolverine. As always, you guys can catch me over on Instagram at, at the basically covetous man. Wolverine number four was probably my least favorite issue this week. It definitely felt more like a traditional Wolverine book than a Krakoa era story. And I, I mean, there are some Wolverine solo stories I like. There are some that are really good, but that's not a book I'm always eager to subscribe to. Like I'm on this title because it's Krakoa era doc stuff, not for... Not really for this as much. Also, one of the things I love about Krakoa era X-Men is how beautiful the art is. I love not just good art, but art that makes things more beautiful than it needs to be as opposed to less. I mean, this definitely had more of that Southern Bastards, Jason Aaron-ish, like ugly, gritty, dumb, grr, like that... I don't know, like, I just don't enjoy looking at as much. It wasn't a bad story. I understand the rationale. I totally get the PTSD aspect that Wolverine has of his life has always been waiting for the other shoe to drop, and now, like, he might be waiting a long time. How does he deal with that? Like, I get that. I like that. But also, like, what happened to the Wolverine from Hawks 1 rolling around in a field with children? Like... That's what was so cool and great about Wolverine in this new world. You know, I love how he adapts and fits in it, that he is a kind of a square peg round coal, but I don't love him literally pissing on the Quiet Council. Like, um, Growing Pains, I get it, but just not my favorite book. So, yeah. 
I guess that's it for me. I want to thank Nico. Thank all of you for having me back. Uh, this was a blast. You can find me online at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, on Twitter, and also Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L.com, which is my personal site filled with single-issue deep-dive recaps of classic X-books, video reviews of trades and hardcovers, a compendium of the awesomest fan-made XTs on the internet, and also a new feature I've been adding, which uh, comprehensive, easy-to-load cover gallery for classic X-books. Uh, it's complete with blurbable, spoiler-filled mini recaps. It was a lot of fun to make, and I hope you guys check it out. Wolverine. I have to say that I was pretty disappointed with this book. It felt like it was a story that we've already visited in New Mutants, only more gory, and with Omega Red, I don't feel like there was anything new that this book brought to us. We have have a group of mutant haters. It's just the Canadian wilderness version of the New Mutants story that was pretty much the same thing, where they're tracking a mutant and they're planning to kill him. And it's like, you know what? I don't really need this. It's it's I'm hoping that this is going somewhere else, but as of right now, I'm I'm not feeling very inspired to continue this. The only thing that I'm really uh interested in learning more about or the floating guy and the winged demons that are on the last page. We'll see how this goes, but I'm just, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm a fan of these Wolverine books right now. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. First off, I want to say if you're really seen, not only did this take place in a suburb of Philadelphia, they went to Staten Island. No one ever goes to Staten Island. People from Staten Island don't go to Staten Island. What a weird yet perfect location for Deadpool to claim kingship in. I was also expecting when we would see Deadpool, because I feel like he would have to make an appearance for Cable, because I really only know Deadpool and Cable. The last time I saw Deadpool, he was being an ass to Wolverine and Felicia in their heist in Madripoor, so it's it's nice to see him in a much more friendly appearance. Well, I don't know a lot about Old Man slash Adult Cable, I have been quite enjoying his younger version in this era of Dawn of X. I think it adds a nice element and cute dynamic that helps him stand out. I think him having five girlfriends is hysterical, and I think it's really interesting not knowing how this story will turn out. I don't know if his older version will fit as well on Krakoa, or where that dynamic will lead. I don't even know if I would be as interested as if this was just about old man slash adult Cable. I really do think Kid Cable is interesting and cool, and is this really cute character that I'm really fascinated with. While Excalibur gave us some breathtaking art, the title seems to be struggling with its identity. The issue reflects its classic form, but comes across as confusing to the overall narrative. I know that I had trouble remembering that we were in a split timeline, and it didn't really connect to me right away that this was the uh, other team in the other world. Thanks, Jamie. Cable Thea, I think, overall was still fairly interesting, but this issue was more of a middle ground. Wasn't bad, and the Deadpool cameo was pretty fun, especially talking about the dynamic between Adult Cable and Deadpool. But it took smaller steps in the overall narrative of what it's trying to say. I'm still invested and still pretty drawn in and anticipating what will happen. Especially with that ending with the weird X-Cult, that was... 
beyond my comfort level, so great job on the art and writing team and everybody else who worked on this issue, but I'm hoping that this title doesn't fall victim to what I think the other titles are facing, which is spreading itself too thin. There's a lot going on with the aliens wanting the sword and Kid Cable sending them in the past. I understand that they're a more immediate threat, but a baby's missing. I feel like kids kind of, you know, take precedent when you should try to find them. If you want to see me claim my own kingship on Staten Island, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Goodbye!